Today's scripture is found in Exodus 32, 25 through 35. Please stand for the word of the Lord. And when Moses saw that the people had broke loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the, like, throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make an atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay. Good, thank you. Uh, hey, uh, so Easter's coming up, Good Friday. Just a reminder, uh, these services tend to be very full, and so you might want to get here early, especially if you have children. Uh, we do have a program, and we, we want to make sure that you get your kids here on time. There's limited space, especially in our kids' areas, just because we try not to exceed certain ratios. And, and so we will have an overflow, but if you want to be able to get a seat and, and have your kids checked in, make sure you get here a little early. I think we'll open our doors about, uh, about 30 minutes uh, before the service. So we'd love to have you come and uh, be a part of that. All right, well, how many of you this past week, uh, if you're college basketball fans, watch the NCAA final? Raise your hand. Come on, participate with me here. How many of you were rooting for KU? Raise your hand. Okay, how many of you rooted for UNC? The rest of you just didn't care. Um, okay, let's bring it a little closer to home. How many of you are Dodgers fans? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, how many of you are Angels fans, if you're not willing to admit it? There you go. Just a couple of you. There you are. All right, all right. How many of you are Lakers fans? We got any Clippers fans in here? Okay, oh yeah, two of you over there. All right, right on, Chris and Lindsay, right on. Okay, these are like fun rivalries, right? Did you, you, so let's go over to the movies and entertainment. Um, any of you like super terrific fans of, of uh, the Christopher Nolan Batman series? Okay, who's now totally into the Matt Reeves, the Batman uh, new chronicles? Okay, some of you. These are, these are easy ones. Now, let's, um, don't raise your hands now. Uh, a few weeks ago, the Oscars came and, uh, and somebody slapped somebody, right? And some of you are like, you're on team Will Smith because you're like, hey, he was just defending his wife. Others are like, no, I'm on team Chris Rock because he was just telling a joke, right? That, just get over it. We can get more serious. Um, some of you will find yourself in the anti-COVID vaccination camp, and some of you are very pro-vaccine. We could go mass. We could talk about lots of things. In fact, it seems like one of the things that sort of sets us apart from the, the rest of creation as human beings is we love to take sides. We, we, I mean, social media is proof of this, right? We don't really listen to people. We just argue and we take sides, and my side is right. 
Um, but this is this is sort of separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom. I don't think monkeys are getting together and having social issues, you know, conversations around cultural issues. They're not arguing about, you know, global warming or whatever. They're just monkeys, right? But we take sides. And we take sides on things we think are important. Some of you are Republicans, some of you are Democrats, some of you are independent, some of you are libertarian. We have these sides we take. Um, and boy, we hold to some of these things with a fierce defensiveness. The, the Bible actually calls us to take sides in things. Um, in fact, over and over, there are right answers, there are wrong answers, and these are ones, these are probably the ones that in our lives we should be holding to with the most fierceness. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, Moses is going to say to the people, see, he's getting ready to die. And he says, look, I have set before you life and death. You have a choice. Please choose life. In Joshua chapter 5, I believe it is, the commander of the Lord's army comes and appears to Joshua, this fierce warrior-looking creature, probably a Christophany, a, a, you know, a, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. And he stands there and he says, he, you know, Joshua looks at him and says, you know, are, are you on our side or our enemy's side? And the answer isn't, I'm on your side, Joshua. He just said, I'm, he says, no, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. In other words, Joshua, you're not even asking the right question. The question is, are you on my side? In fact, we get to Joshua 24 and he'll say, he'll say that, that, uh, that, 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 that famous passage of, as for me and my house, choose you this day whom you will serve. My house, we've decided we're serving God. You get to the New Testament and Jesus is going to say in his Sermon on the Mount, right, that no one can serve two masters. You have a choice to make. You serve one, you hate the other. You hate one, you serve the other. You can't serve God and money. He's saying, choose, take a side here. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he's talking about the Lord's Supper, talking about unity in the church. And he says, I hear that there are divisions among you. And then he goes on to say, I'm actually glad to hear that because one side is right and the other side's wrong. We are called to make choices. And today you heard it straight from Moses' mouth. The big choice of the day, who is on the Lord's side? And I want us to look at this through sort of the lens of three different questions uh, as we walk through verses 25 to 35, okay? So open your Bibles with me, and let me just say, put your finger back in Romans, because we're going to sort of refer to Romans a few times. I want you to see sort of how this plays out in both Testaments. But, uh, but we start with this big question that Moses asks, who is on the Lord's side? So let's start reading again. Look at chapter 32, go to verse 25. And we'll just make our way before we get to that question. He says, and when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Okay, so where are we? We are, well, uh, Moses has confronted Aaron. If you were here last week, Aaron, what could you have been thinking? What'd you happen? Aaron, Aaron sort of makes this ridiculous excuse. I threw the gold in and boom, out popped this calf. It was a crazy experience. Moses should have been there, right? But Moses now turns his attention from Aaron to the people. And I want to double click on some words here and sort of try to, try to mine out what's happening. First of all, notice he says the people had broken loose. You see that term in your Bibles in verse, in, uh, verse 25? Broken loose has this idea of running wild, out of control. Think of it this way. The moral boundaries had been shattered. 
Like they had run beyond moral, moral, why? They're in that party. Remember, they come down, he hears this ruckus. Joshua goes, I think I hear the sound of war. He goes, no, that's sound of singing and it's revelry and it's debauchery. They had broken loose of all moral restraint. Now, what does that normally mean? When you break loose of moral restraint, let me suggest to you that most often that enters into your sexuality. That enters into uh, a sexual immorality. There's a very interesting connection in Scripture between idolatry and sexual immorality, right? Remember, remember where we are. They have been worshiping this golden calf. And most scholars believe that when he uses terms like broken loose, beyond the moral boundaries, the kind of debauchery they're hearing, that what was happening is just wild sexual immorality. That idolatry and sexual immorality go together. There's a link between them. In fact, let me say it this way. God very often exposes the idolatry of a culture or of you individually through sexual immorality. Okay, let me explain this. If you call yourself a Christian and yet you believe that you can violate the sexual ethic and mores of Scripture, then you are not worshiping God. I guarantee you, you are worshiping something less than God, and that's called idolatry. In fact, okay, I told you to turn over to Romans. Go to Romans 1. Let me, let me just read this extended section to you. Follow Paul's argument here. Okay, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteous men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, the wrath of God. That's Exodus 32. Watch how much Exodus 32 is in this passage. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Would that be true of Israel in Exodus 32? He's shown him his power. For his invisible, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Stop there and look at me just for a second. He's saying, look, people can look at mountains and deer and buffalo and your dog, and you can look at a flower, and you can go, man, something. Here, let's say it this way. God doesn't believe in atheists. Right? He, he says that there's no such thing. They all know what they do is suppress the truth in unrighteousness and they are without excuse. They're not going to be able to stand before God and say, man, I convinced myself you weren't real. He's going to say, that's a lie. You simply suppressed the truth. You knew it was real. Verse 21, for all they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. And look at this, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. This is Exodus 32, exchanging what they know about God for a golden calf. We're going to worship this image. Now look, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. He's going to go on now if you flip the page, if you turn one more verse and start talking about sexual immorality. You see the connection? 
See what's happening here? God says this is, this is what happens. What, what happens when we suppress the truth. Suppression never stays suppression. It always results in exchange. And now I worship another God. I worship, in fact, a God of my own making. And when you have a God of your own making, you have a God who's powerless. You have a God who looks really just like you. He, he, he believes what you believe. He, he encourages what you want to do. He never confronts you. He never, he can't change you. Because he's just like you. And you will see the evidence of that very often in sexual mores. This is what's happening here in Exodus 32. Now, what's the result when that happens among the people of God? Go back to Exodus 32. See what he says? They broke loose. And Moses writes, to the derision of their enemies. Double click on that word. What's the idea behind derision? It's mocking. It's disparaging. Now what's happening there? Why would the sexual morality or the boundary breaking of the people of God be something that causes people, others outside of the people of God to mock them, their enemies to mock them? Okay, well think about what, what's happening. Um, uh, in, fact, in fact, do this. Go, go over to Romans chapter 2 now and go down to verse 21. Paul is talking about the law and he's going to talk to the Jews about the law. And he says this, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself while you preach against stealing? Do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who ab uh, abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is as, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. See what's happening here? Jews, you, people of God, us, we claim to know God. We claim that this Bible is the word of God. This is something we maybe boast about. Certainly the Jews did, that we have the law. We have this God who handed us a law from the mountain. And Moses, Paul basically says, yes, and, and, and you take pride in that. And you say, hey, you're not obeying the law, but, but neither do we. We're not doing the very things that we say we're supposed to do. What happens when you tell people to live one way, but you don't live that way? What happens when you claim you believe something, but you show that you don't through your life? Mockery of God, blasphemy of God. Your God's nothing. I don't believe this whole Christianity thing. I don't believe a word you say. This is stupid. You don't even believe it. Why would I believe it? This is what's going on with the golden calf, right? Now, okay, let's go back to Exodus 32. Let's go back to the mountain, the calf. Think about what's happening here. Moses comes down. The people had said earlier in Exodus, we will obey everything the Lord says. And within days, right, they are already violating the first several commandments, Okay, they, they are committing adultery. They are worshiping another God. They are making graven images. They're doing all these things they were forbidden to do. And then God had sealed that covenant with them with blood, basically saying, if, if, if I break the covenant, may I be basically torn to pieces like this animal that we made the covenant with. And same for you. They've broken the covenant. Now, what would be a just response a just response would be wipe them all out. None of them deserve to live. 
He could have just started over. Moses, I suppose, could have said, okay, God, fire from heaven, bam, boom, let's start over. He didn't do that. In wrath, God remembered mercy. So now look at verse 26. Look, how did he do this? Then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the, the, the sons of Levi gathered around him. Now, now notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, if you weren't one of those who worship the golden calf, come to me. If you weren't one of those engaged in sexual sin, come to me. If you weren't one of those that were being debauched in your behavior, come to me. He simply said, here it is, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, now is decision time. Now is when you recognize the authority of the king and you, and you run to him. You take sides. This is an act of amnesty, right? Here's what I mean. God could have judged. God could have, could have just annihilated everything. He doesn't. He, in some ways, is providing a means for a full pardon. See, all that's required is immediate action. Come to me right now. Not, not sit there and ponder and think about it and I don't know, maybe. No, you leave sin behind. You rush to the side of God's mediator. You, you stay. You, if you want to stay, you can stay. But if you stay, you face the judgment. If you run to, to God's side, who's on the Lord's side, you run to Moses if you're, a, if you're a, 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 an Old Testament Israelite, you'll be safe there. Um, remember we said, all through the book of Exodus, this is the story of salvation. And what we meant by that was that this is giving us, there is picture after picture after picture of what salvation looks like. And here is another one, right? Here's another one. Everyone has to make this decision. Everyone. And by that, listen, I, I mean, everybody in life does make this decision. One way or another, you decide. See, see you're, you're, you're not asking you don't come to God and say, God, are you with me or for me? No, God says to you, are you with me? Like he says to Joshua, are you, are you on my side? You understand, there is no neutral ground. You're going to see this over and over. There's no spiritual Switzerland. There is, there, you can't stand here and say, well, I'm just going to kind of not move between the extremes. I, I don't want to go over and be those crazy, you know, uh, debauched people, but I, I don't want to go and be those crazy Christian either. I want to sort of stand here in the middle and just be a good person. There's no such thing. In fact, this is what Jesus is going to say. Matthew chapter 12, he who is not with me is against me. To not choose is to choose. You, 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 you do not have the luxury of saying there is neutral ground. See, let me, let me put it in these terms. If I'm, if I'm trying to see what's happening in salvation through the lens of Exodus 32, let's say it this way. What will you do to save yourself from the wrath of God to come? That's really the question. And you'll have really you got two choices. You'll either take shelter under the paper bag of your own righteousness or you will be found in him, Jesus, not having a righteousness of your own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's the only two choices you have. 
There's, there's no other sort of middle ground in there. Stay where you, you, you can't stay where you are. You understand? You're not born into neutrality. Nobody is. Nobody's in a neutral place. You're born, the Bible says, conceived, in fact, into sin. From the moment you're, you're, you know, you, you, you're, your mom became pregnant and, and you're in her womb, boom, in that moment, you were a sinful person. You had already, unbeknownst to you, taken sides. That's how the Bible talks about you. So you can't come out and claim, well, yeah, but I've been a good person, so I must be in this neutral territory. No, you're an enemy. And you choose and say, I'm going to leave all that behind and I'm going to run to Christ. That's a picture of salvation. This is exactly what is happening in Exodus 32. This is what we're called to do. And by the way, it doesn't end at the moment of salvation. You understand, Christian, every day of our lives we're choosing, right, who's on the Lord's side. Am I on the Lord's side? Am I choosing things every day that demonstrate I'm on the Lord's side? I come to church, right? I'm on the Lord's side. I want to do this. I want to be with the people of God. I, I want to act righteously. I want to, I want to be a, a, a person that, that, that of integrity in my workplace. I, I want to choose the Lord's side when it comes to being a father, to being a, a mother, to being a single person, right? I, w- I want to choose the Lord's side every single day. Who's on the Lord's side? Are you with him? Are you against him? That's the first question. Here's the second question. Who's killing sin? Go down to verse 27. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to the camp. Go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion, his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. Now, okay, what in the world? (laughs) What's happening here? Let me make a few comments and then let me give you some, some principles to think about when it comes to this. Okay, so, so here's the Levites. They come, strap on your sword and notice, just, just, just look at this with me carefully. Okay, verse 27, he says, put your sword on, go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. Okay, I think what we're meant to see here is, first of all, God has been the one who has asked them to do this. This is not just Moses saying, I'm so angry, just go slaughter people. This is not just a wholesale sort of berserker style, you know, I'm just going and hacking people. That's not what's happening here. They go from gate to gate. It's systematic. It's, it's calculated. And I don't mean that in a sinister way. I mean, there are people who are being gone after. And most likely what that means is those, those people, the gate was a place of influence who stood in the gates and basically said, I've already taken sides and it's not the Lord's and I like the style, the, 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 the side that I've chosen and I'm going to continue in my rebellion. And so that's most likely what's happening. So this is people who are being defiant and unrepentant sin. The second of all is notice not everyone is killed. Remember, <clears throat> God could have killed everybody. He kills only 3,000. You think only 3,000? That's a lot of people. But we focus on the number that was killed, not the number that was saved, right? You, you got to understand at this point, we know there's probably about 600,000 men. That probably means somewhere around 2 million people that are in this group and 3,000 of them died. A very small fraction. Think of how many God was merciful to in saving them. But, but the third thing, notice that the Levites' obedience consecrated them to the priesthood. And, and, and do you see how he says it? Verse 29, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother. Okay, 
um, this is hard. Because what's happening here is you see that because they were so obedient to God, they were more loyal to God than to their own family. Now, do you understand this, Christian, that God has a higher claim on you and demands a higher love for you than you have for your own children, than you have for your spouse, than you have for a mom and dad, you have for that person who is their spouse, the closest person to you. Michelle and I were talking about it and she, we were on the way home and she's like, like, how can we be like this? That's hard, isn't it? But, but this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10. He says, whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. In other words, there can, there can be, um, you can have no other higher loyalty than to Jesus. Not another person, not the closest person in your family, not even yourself. At the cost of your own life, you will love Jesus more than you love all of those things. He doesn't mean you hate your family. He means you love him more. In fact, I would suggest to you, you can't love your spouse or your children the way you're supposed to without loving Jesus more. But, but I think the idea here is if it ever comes t- time to choose you're going to choose Jesus. We pray this. Michelle and I, we pray for our kids all the time, you know, and, and um, three of them aren't married yet, and so we pray as they get married, Lord, I pray that their, their future spouses would love you more than they love them. I pray my children would love you more than they love their future spouse. Because think about this. The world tempts us to betray that loyalty all the time. Okay, let me, this is happening in the context of sexual sin, so let me, let me just go there for a moment. I hear this all the time. People that essentially walk away from Christian orthodoxy because they have a family member that's gay that walk away from saying, I'm going to take my stand where the Bible takes, my stand, takes its stand because um, somebody outside in my family is engaged in a kind of sexual morality and I don't want to not love them. Well, of course you don't want to not love them. But, but that's not the question. There's a betrayal of who has your highest loyalty at this point. See, this is not an abstract notion. It's not just, oh yeah, I should love God more than I love others. No, it actually, it, it actually comes down to bear in moments of sin in those people's lives that are closest to you. Will you justify their sin, whatever it may be? Or will you say, no, I take the Lord's side. That doesn't mean you expel them. It doesn't mean you're angry with them. It doesn't mean you're jerks to them. It means you say, look, when it, if I have to make the choice, I side with God. I'm on the Lord's side and I love you but I, I, I can't say that what you're doing is right because I have a higher loyalty. That's what's going on. Now, what are the principles here? Let, let me give you three. And I think, let, let, let's just start by saying this. Paul says this, that for whatever was written in former days, that is, that is Old Testament, was written for our instruction. Okay, so what are we supposed to make of this, you know, 
sword killing of 3,000 people. Well, obviously, I don't think the application is we kill sinners. That's not the idea. So what are the principles? Let me give you three. Number one, I think this is a picture of God's wrath against unrepentant sin. Now, talk about this a little bit more in just a second. But, but look, the result, this is the result, in other words, <clears throat> for everyone who fails to worship God, who worships the creature more than the creator, who, who fails to glorify God. This is, this is the one who says, man, I want to live my own life without reference to God. I, I, I worship things less than God. Really, what has my affection is something that's not God. I'm not in the fight of faith. I just reject it. Um. Then, then I think we have a picture here, sort of this, this, this little glimpse into what the wrath of God looks like against sin. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And so this is what happens. The second thing I think the, the, the principle here is it's an illustration of how we should deal with our own personal sin. And here's what I mean by that. God calls us to be radical with our sin right? I mean, Jesus says, like, everybody likes to think of Jesus as, you know, this guy who walks around in light blue and just, you know, sort of sprinkles flowers and rainbows on people, and he just says words of love, and then Jesus comes along and says things like, if your right eye causes, you know, causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Like, like the idea there is it's, it's, it's better that you lose a valuable body part than for you to miss out on heaven and receive hell. Don't, don't fear the one, Jesus says, who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and cast the soul into hell. God. Right? This is how Jesus talks sometimes. And he's saying, man, we've got to be radical with how we deal with sin. He's not advocating self-mutilation. He's making a point through hyperbole. Like, this is how we deal with this. We, we have to be able to be ruthless with our sin. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. We are called to put to death the deeds of the flesh, right? This is Paul in Romans 8, 13. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die, but if by the Spirit, you, you, you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. But you hear that? Like th th that means you're active in putting to death sin in your life. You're not passive about it. It's a very active idea. I go and I slay sin. How do I do that though? I can't just do that of my own accord. I do it, Paul says, by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, again, there's no neutral ground. There's not a, um, I'm in kind of this, hey, I, I'm, I'm not really trying to put it to death and I'm not really trying to accommodate. I'm just trying to be a good person. There, there, there's not that choice. We be killing sin or sin will be killing us. Um, okay, third, I think, principle here is that I think what this is happening here in these, in these verses, it's an old covenant illustration of the New Testament church discipline. So think like, this is what happened in the Old Testament. It transposes into a different key in the New Testament. This happens all the time, by the way, right? In the New Testament, they were under theocracy. Well, we don't have a theocracy. We have, you know, we have governments and all that. What we do have is 
the church. This is, this is where the, you might say, the governing of the people of God is supposed to happen. By the way, this is one of the reasons you should belong, not just attend, a local church. It should be part of what we do. It should be part of our, our Christian discipline. I, I actually submit myself to the authority of the, 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 the church, right? I have to do that. Understand, I, I'm not the guy. There's not like, hey, every time I'm Moses coming off the mountain. No, I'm one of, of a, a group of elders and they actually, I have to submit to them. We're called to submit all of us to one another. We're called to submit to the authorities within our church. We could say it that way. Okay, so, so how do we think about this? Okay, we understand the Bible calls all of us individually, corporately to holiness. You understand, Foothill Church, we are supposed to be a holy people. Doesn't mean we have no sin. But, but, but it does mean that there are times when we as a people must put idolatry, must put immorality to death. How do we do that? We don't have the power of the sword, right? You understand what I mean by that? We can't execute people. Good thing, right? I mean, that's actually, a, I'm glad about that. But when we get to the New Testament, it's not, it's no longer the power of the sword to execute those who are transgressors. It's now the power of the church to excommunicate, to discipline those who are transgressors. Now, let me explain this. The way this works isn't simply, you know, we, 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 you sinned yesterday, man, you shouldn't be, the church is only for perfect people. No. No, every person in here sinned probably today already, right? If not numerous times, myself included. So, so, so we're not walking around being sin hunters that are looking for every little mistake, right? We're, we're, we're not some sort of, you know, uh, reclusive community that you've got to dress a certain way and talk a certain way and all these stuff, or you're out, no. No, but we are a church community. We are the body of Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, so if I go to Exodus 32, how did I know the difference between right and wrong in Exodus 32? We might say the edge of the Levite sword. How do we know the difference between right and wrong in the New Testament? We do have a sword. It's called the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And it says it divides bone and marrow it tells us what's right. It tells us what's wrong. We look to our Bibles. So when a Christian who belongs to a local church um, is living okay, in open, unrepentant, and ongoing sin, then that is cause for church discipline. Okay, let me, let me tell you what I mean. Open, okay? You can't discipline for things like selfishness because I can't see, none of us can see selfishness most likely, right? Or pride. It's open. That is, that there is a behavior that is counter-biblical. It's against what the Bible would say. It's unrepentant. Look at you could sin. You could be, man, I, I, I sinned egregiously, but I'm so repentant. I'm so sorry for that sin. Great. That's exactly where the Bible wants all of us to be. But this is open and unrepentant. And it didn't just happen once, it's ongoing. This is now a pattern of your life and, and, and you continue this, but you continue to want to say, I'm a part of this community and I'm a Christian. 
Well, that's when the Bible would say, no, we don't have the power of the sword for execution. That's where we have the power of the Word of God for excommunication. And that's where church discipline happens. By the way, Paul gives us an example of this in 1 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians 5, he says, hey, it's reported that there is a guy in your church. We might say the church in Corinth was a progressive, affirming church, tolerated all kinds of sexual sin. So he says, actually, there's a guy in your church, Paul says, just read it sometimes in 1 Corinthians 5, that, that it's reported that, that he, he is sleeping with his father's mother. Now, I have no idea what's going on there. It might be as creepy and awful as it sounds, but in any event, that's what's happening. And he says, here's the problem. And, and you, you actually boast in this. Does this sound like a lot of modern churches? We take what the Bible calls sexual sin and we celebrate it and say, oh, welcome everybody. This is, we, we are so glad that we fall under this banner of acceptance and tolerance. Paul isn't saying be a jerk. Paul is saying, here's a guy. By the way, if you don't know Jesus and you're here and you're in some sort of what the Bible would call sexual sin, the, the Bible would say, man, we're so glad you're here. You should be here. We're, we're, we would welcome you. But if you're somebody who says, I'm a follower of Jesus, then Paul's going to say in 1 Corinthians, I told you not to fellowship with the sexually immoral. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, he says. Meaning those who name the name of Christ and continue in open, unrepentant, ongoing sexual sin. He says, man, no. No, he says, that, that brother... In 1 Corinthians 5, he actually says, purge this evil person from your midst. Paul didn't just pluck that, that phrase out of the air. He actually borrowed that from the Old Covenant where the word purge in the Old Testament meant to execute. In the New Testament, it means excommunicate. From the church, by the way. I had somebody come to me after the first service and say, so what am I supposed to do, right? I have a, I have a daughter who's, who's a lesbian and she's married. Uh, they're about to have a baby. Like, do, am I supposed to expel? I'm like, no, no, that's a church thing. If this is a, if she's, if she's in a church where, where she says, man, I, I'm a Christian and I'm, I wanna be a covenant partner, then it's that church's responsibility to say, listen, sister, we, we love you and we want you to come here, but you understand we can't allow you to be a partner. We can't allow you to be joined in, in membership, if you will, to this church because you're, you're continuing an open, unrepentant, ongoing sin. But I said to the sweet woman, you're, you're, you're being a good mom to love her. You're trying to love her through this at the same time not excusing her sin. You follow me? It's a picture that we get in the Old Testament of New Testament church discipline. Now, now why is it necessary to do that? Because that, some of you think like that feels so unloving if you actually told somebody they had to leave the church. Here's how Paul puts it. Um, M Michelle loves to, to bake bread. She's an amazing sourdough, like boule, whatever maker. And, and so she, she'll take a bowl. Many of you know this, right? And you drop the dough in it and it rises and you take it out and she does all this stuff. What if she took that bowl and just set it aside and never cleaned it? 
All she would have to do is put flour and water, let it sit there, and the yeast on the edges of that bowl, that little trace amounts of yeast would ultimately, what the Bible says, leaven the entire lump. And that's exactly how Paul talks about the fact that we tolerate open, unrepentant, ongoing sin. We're all sinners, okay? Amen? We're all sinners. What we must not be is people that when I'm confronted in my sin go, hey, doesn't matter what the Bible says. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. That's open. That's unrepentant. That's ongoing. And if I won't repent of that, then the Bible says I must be, I, I'm, like, I'm like the yeast on the edge of that bowl. And eventually that kind of attitude will permeate everything. And it will, it will kill a biblical church of God. It's done it. Just walk the streets. And you will see this over and over and over again in churches in America. That's where they started. Okay? This isn't a matter of being tolerant or intolerant. This is a matter of saying, man, we, our loyalty first and foremost is to God and to his word. Who's killing sin? Are you? Are you ruthless about the sin in your own life? Are we, are we attentive to the fact that we don't, we don't want to see open, unrepentant, ongoing sin in our midst? Okay, let's keep going. Last thing, who can make atonement? Now watch this. Look at verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Now, now, now let's, let's talk about what's happening here, okay? God isn't finished with the people. The dealing with Aaron, the 3,000 that are now dead, God's still not done. You're going to see there's a plague that was sent later on. James Boyce says this. He says, there was still a problem. He says, from a human point of view, Moses had dealt with the sin. The leaders were punished. Aaron was rebuked. The allegiance of the people was at least temporarily reclaimed. All seemed to be well, but God still waited in wrath upon the mountain. What was Moses to do? Moses had received enough of the law to know something of the horror of sin and of the uncompromising nature of God's righteousness. Had not God said, you shall have no other gods before me. Had he not promised to visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Who was Moses to think the limited judgment he had begun would satisfy the holiness of such a God? Okay, so, so here are the people. They've broken a blood covenant. They all deserve to die. But God says, I'm not going to destroy you. Moses is maybe laying in his bed the night before and going, how does this work? I'm beginning to understand something about salvation. Is it possible, right? Who will atone for the sins of the people? Without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sins. Whose blood is he going to accept? And so Moses steps up and says, maybe it's me. Maybe I'm of God's appointed mediator. Therefore, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm thinking back. I remember the Passover that we'll all celebrate this week. And I remember the lamb and he accepted the substitute of a lamb. Maybe if he accepted that, maybe he will accept me. God, take me for them. 
I think, I think he's starting to understand this is how salvation works, right? Sinful people need a qualified substitute. Do you understand? You can't pay for your sin. You can't satisfy, let's say it this way, you can't satisfy God's wrath against sin. It would take you an eternity, and it will. There needs to be an atoning sacrifice. So Moses comes and says, God, will you accept me? In fact, um, it, it, it's interesting. L- look, at, look at how he phrases this. He's saying, maybe, maybe God, God, maybe if, look at verse 32, but now if, if you will forgive their sin, and do you notice there's like a, a stop? If you'll forgive their sin, oh, but, but if not, it's as though Moses is saying, God, God, maybe, maybe I'm just gonna come to you, this is a crazy request, maybe by executive fiat, you can just forgive their sin, sweep it under the rug, act like it didn't exist. And it's like he comes to his senses and understands, no, I can't, that can't happen. God can't just forgive sins. There has to be blood, there has to be a substitute. God blot me out. This is a magnanimous moment for Moses. It's Paul in Romans chapter nine. Oh, I wish, I wish that on behalf of my people Israel, God would accept me and save them. And now look at verse 33. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which I've spoken. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord sent a plague. God, will you, will you transfer their guilt to me and let me pay for their sin? And God says, no. I can't do that, Moses. I can't let you be their substitute. Why not? See, Exodus 32 doesn't give us the answer. It says that's not possible. The rest of the Bible gives us the answer and says because, because Moses can't take their sin because Moses himself is a sinner, Moses is not a perfect substitute. He's not a perfect sacrifice. There's a great Simpsons episode. I think it's a funny place to insert this, right? But where Homer is going to buy a Bible and he sees the cost and he says, this Bible costs 15 bucks and he's incensed about it. And he says, and talk about a preachy book. Everybody's a sinner except this guy. He's exactly right. Everybody's a sinner except this guy. There's only one, right, that can pay the substitute. This is why Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, God made him who had no sin to be sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus comes and takes our sin. This guy, Jesus, is now our substitute. See, Moses was right in the sense that he said, God, maybe you'll accept a substitute. You're right, Moses. Moses was wrong. It's not just anyone. There's only one guy. His name is Jesus. And at the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law. At just the right time, Christ, the perfect one, died for the ungodly. There's only one substitute. And everyone who comes to him will be saved. Everyone found in him will be saved. Listen, we have to come in our sin. We have to come asking God, be merciful to me, a sinner, telling I want Christ to be my substitute. I'm going to run to his side. I'm going to take shelter under his wing. I'm going to find my refuge there. Until then, until then. 
we're not on the Lord's side. Listen, church, some of you have reason to shout and sing and be so grateful because that was all of our lot. We were, we were without hope, without God in this present world, but God being rich in mercy because of his steadfast love toward us, by grace you have been saved. You are no longer under the wrath of God if you've put your trust in him. Hear me. That's a reason for celebration. That's a reason for at the beginning of our service saying, I thank God that hell has lost another one. I'm free. Do you see this? But if you've not done that, if you've not done that, then you're still subject to God's building wrath against sin. And there's only one way out from under it. It's running to God's side. It's running to the side of Jesus and saying, Jesus, I want to take shelter in you. Please be my savior. You turn, you leave sin behind. Not looking for perfect people who didn't bow to the idol. Not looking for people who have never committed a sexual sin. He's saying, doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, where you are. If you'll turn from that and run to Jesus, you can be saved. Man, I hope you'll do that today. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your overwhelming mercy to us, Lord. You didn't have to do any of this. You could have just said, I'm starting over. I'm, I'm, I'm making a, a clean start, wiping the board clean. But you didn't. You, you, you gave us away through Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that would fill the hearts of those of us who name and claim the name of Christ that, that say, man, I have been set free in that way. Here's what I was destined for. Here's what I was bound for. But God, you saved me. And I pray, Lord, that that those who are in this room that have never made that decision, today might be a day. Today, not tomorrow, God, that today there is a decision being called for and they would turn in faith to Jesus Christ, believe upon his name and be rescued. May they fly to Jesus in this moment, I pray. In Jesus' name.